So it's all here. The story of our time with the barcode. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkoff. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. This episode explores how to build a meaningful social movement with two leading forces in activism today. Brittany Patrick Cunningham is an educator, writer, and co-founder of Campaign Zero, a policy platform to end police violence. And Christina Sitsun Ramirez, a recent candidate for the U.S. Senate, is an author, labor organizer, and founder of JOLT, the civil rights nonprofit aimed at increasing voter turnout among Latinos in Texas. Our moderator is Dr. Leonard Moore, Vice President for Diversity and Community Engagement and Professor of American History at the University of Texas. So I'm going to start the first question, and Brittany, we'll give it to you first. What was your sort of introduction to social activism? Was there a moment, was there a moment you can can recall where it it, it just hit for you? Um, Well, first of all, I'm just deeply honored to be here, and I'm excited about what I know will be a a positively provocative conversation. Okay, I I like that. Um, It's hard for me, honestly, to pinpoint a moment. I was raised by a black educator and a black liberation theologian. So I really had no choice but to understand justice was the right. family business. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, um, my, my early films were Henry Hampton's Eyes on the Prize series. My early books were the autobiography of Frederick Douglass. Right. Um, I will say, though, that probably the most on-brand story for my childhood, if you will, uh, was when around Christmas time, my dad and I were in the mall looking for a present for my mom, and he asked me if I wanted to go and take a picture with Santa, and I said no, because huh. Santa doesn't look like me. Huh. Um, and I had been raised to have such incredibly positive influences and role models that looked like me and re- came from where I come from. Um, and so it was actually confusing to me that the rest of the world didn't look just <laughs> like my church, my house, wow. and all of the role models my parents had put in front of me. Uh, and so my dad said, well, what do you want to do about it? So between his church members, my cousins, and my friends, we got a lot of signs and a lot of markers and started marching right around the white Santa in the St. Louis Gallery and demanding that the the owners of the mall conglomerates in St. Louis actually start to provide uh, Santas of color. And sure enough, we got us some black Santas. Awesome. All right. All right. The black Santa story. All right. So I've been doing this work for a long time. I'm definitely not new to it. I'm true to it. But I, I definitely I'm grateful to my parents for helping me recognize myself um, as an agent of change at a young age and not dictating that I wait until I'm much older. Christina. Yeah, so similarly, I think if you grow up and experience there isn't, and you walk a certain life, there's this like moment that happened and you woke up and you realized that the world wasn't the way it was or as it was told. So um, I've had the privilege as a kid growing up in two very different worlds. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, where I think I was the only Chicana growing up um, in Columbus. Um, But my uh, mom is the oldest of nine kids from a very poor family in Michoacan, Mexico. 
And my dad is a white American hippie that went and lived on a commune with a bunch of folks from UT Austin <laughs> in Mexico in the 70s. So as a kid, I grew up in two very different worlds, one that was rich and one that was poor and one that was white and one that was brown. And my parents taught me and my siblings that our greatest privilege was not necessarily being born in the United States, but it was this privilege of being able to understand two cultures, two communities, and two languages. And that with that great privilege came a great responsibility to address the inequality we saw around us. And I'm pretty light-skinned, so mm -hmm. I can pass for white. Just a little bit. And when, thank you. <laughs> so growing up in Ohio, I will say that people read race differently in Texas. Yeah. Like, and they can see I'm Latina. When I'm in Ohio, people don't know what right. I am, right? But here in Texas, you can see what I am. <laughs> but growing up in Ohio, I would walk in to meet with doctors or teachers. And when we would walk in with my dad, who was white and spoke English, versus when we would walk in with my mom, who was dark-skinned and spoke English with an accent, there were so many times that the treatment was like night and day. Mm -hmm. And so I had this great privilege to see that not everybody got treated the same way, um, that not everyone had access to the same things, and that it didn't matter how hard you worked, um, that there were just simply different roles for different people. Uh, here's a question. You know, the... the the generation that, 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 that looks up to you, I would say, the younger generation who you all are trying to mobilize, they love to talk about being woke, all right? And they love diversity and equity. But it's been my experience that they love racial, ethnic diversity, gender diversity, sexual orientation diversity, all of that. But when it comes to diversity of thought, they tend to be very closed-minded. Even here at UT, some of the Black and brown students will say, well, Dr. Moore, I don't go to that office because to go to that office, to be around those students, you have to think a certain way. And so how do we get to the point where we embrace diversity of thought? Because I don't believe we can grow if we just confine ourselves to, to an echo chamber. And one of you all can, can take that up. Yeah, so um, my organization mobilize young, mobilizes young Latino voters here in Texas. And I love, love doing racial justice work mm -hmm. in Texas and doing this kind of work of Texas um, because oftentimes I go to the East or West Coast and people are speaking to each other in a bubble. And here there is no choir to preach to. There are only non-believers to convert. And so That's I right. love That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> That's a good and at Jolt, my audience isn't the woke activist Latinx person. At Jolt, you can come and call yourself Latinx, call yourself Latino, call yourself Hispanic, call yourself Mexican, mm -hmm. call yourself whatever you want, but carry yourself with dignity and respect for mm -hmm. others. I don't want the activist woke person. Okay. In, wow. That's not my target audience. My target audience is the average working class brown youth that represents the majority of who Texas is, but doesn't see themselves reflected anywhere. So at Jolt, you know, we talk about how as Latinos, we make up 40% of the state's population, but most of the young people we work with think we make up 10 or 15% wow. of Texas. Wow. And they think that because they don't see themselves reflected in government. They don't see themselves reflected in the stories of who Texas is. And that when people think about Texas, what I want them to stop imagining, you know, my grandpa was an awesome white cowboy from Texas, and there are many of them. <laughs> but really what they should be imagining is a state that is primarily young, black, and brown. Mm. And that you, to talk to the average person, you need to talk to them not about how to be m the most woke, how to make sure that you are being a certain way. That the, at, on prog the progressive side, sometimes we're so inclusive, we're exclusive, but wow. it feels like that's a right. club that's where right. no one belongs if that's you're right. not there in the right way. That's right. And that's not, that's not the party or 
community that I want to be a part of. I want to be part of a community where you can show up and be however you are, whether you're a halfie like me or a dreamer or a fifth generation Texan. And no one tells you how to represent yourself, but you get to tell your story for yourself the way you see it. That's the community that I want to be a part of. Brittany? Um, so there are places where I 100% sign off on that, and there are places where I feel like we should push a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, since this is the conversation that you invited us to have. That's right. Um, so, so I will say, you know, I often say, I, I don't care how you got woke, I just care how you stay woke, okay. that you stay woke. Uh-huh. Um, we are so quick to judge how soon someone came to the understanding of an identity different than yours, or how soon someone came to understand issues of inequity. Um, And I think that that kind of woke litmus test, if you will, is incredibly dangerous. It is incredibly exclusionary. Um, And it doesn't give people the opportunity to actually grow into who they can be. Um, And if we do not open the door for people to grow into whom they can be, then we can't build the army for justice and equity that we actually need. We were talking earlier, I was like, my job is not to ensure that the same 20 people are crisscrossing the country having the same conversations trying to do the same thing. The point is to activate someone else who can activate someone else and we engage in the kind of multiplier effect such that we together are the biggest choir, the biggest army possible for justice and equity. So I I wholeheartedly agree with that. I want to defend the coasts a little bit, though. Okay. Because, and I say this as a Midwesterner, but I have been on the road for five, di- for six days now, five cities. And um, before I was here, I was home in St. Louis. And when I'm home in St. Louis, when I land at, at, at Lambert uh, Airport, there is one language that comes over the loudspeaker. One, it's English. When I land in D.C. or in New York, There are four languages, five languages that come over that speaker. And there is something that we can learn from people who have grown up in a space that has consistently been diverse, right? And I think that when we dismiss folks on the coast as just elites who don't understand the rest of the country, it's actually closed, it's it's creating a different kind of exclusion, right? If we don't want to exclude folks in the center of the country, we shouldn't exclude folks on the outside, on the skirts of the country either, because there is something to be learned from folks who understand what it means to have one neighbor who is a Chinese immigrant and one neighbor who is a Haitian immigrant, right? And I'm not saying this is not what you were saying. I just want to push the conversation a little bit more. Um, I I think that there's a real opportunity for us to be having a different dialogue, not necessarily about what the standard has to be for wokeness, but what it actually means to be in the constant process of being awakened, right? And how that looks in Ohio and how that looks in St. Louis and how that looks in Los Angeles and New York City. Yeah. So, uh... I got to get on the edge of my seat for this one. Uh So so I don't like the term people of color. I think it it, it, it has become a catch-all phrase Mm -hmm. for anybody who's not white. Mm -hmm. So I want to know, does that include my neighbor from India who works at Dell? Does it include my son's best friend's father who's a a physician up up in Killeen? Because I think there is something powerful, particularly in Texas, when you call out the ethnic group. I think Hispanic is the least threatening term you could use for somebody. You got Hispanic, then you got Latino, a little more threat. But when you say Mexican, there's something powerful there. And I wonder, have we allowed corporate America to dictate our language? 
Because when you say people of color, I don't know who's included. Mm -hmm. I don't know who's excluded. And so I just like calling out the ethnic groups because the experience of a Vietnamese American in New Orleans is totally different Mm -hmm. than than, than, than somebody from India living in Silicon Valley. So, Yeah. You know, language is imperfect and it is ever changing. So I'm less concerned about the words that we use. I'm much more concerned with the actions that we take and recognizing that it is it is one of the great um, uh, tactics of white supremacy to continuously divide Mm -hmm. people of color. And I can recognize our differences and pledge to stand with you so that together as the global majority, we can create a world of equity. Got it, all right, all right. Christina, you want to, or, or, or she summed it up well. Well, I mean, I think here in Texas, it's important to understand that, again, Texas is not the way we imagine it, that mm-hmm. it's majority people of color. And similarly, yes, the words are not always, don't represent the diversity within our communities and don't represent the diversity of stories. But I think what is important is for, you know, there's a lot of, Uh, Like my mom, she didn't fully understand she was a person of color. She knew she wasn't white, Mm -hmm. but she didn't know what her experience was. And I feel like a lot of Latinos that I know, we talk a lot about our experience through the lens of immigration and don't talk about it through the lens of race because that's the way we're taught to talk about it. In this country, the number one issue that you talk about Latinos is immigration. But I don't believe that the debate we're having on immigration is actually about who has green cards or what, who came with the right papers, that whether they're trying to rescind the rights of dreamers, undercount immigrants and their children in the U.S. Census or cut legal migration in half, that at the end of the day, we're having this debate because the majority of immigrants are people of color, right. that they, um, they are afraid of our voting power and our ability to transform this country. So I think it's important. Jolt, our main frame is brown is powerful. And you have to understand that most Latinos in Texas are, 87% of us are of Mexican descent, another 10% of us are Central American, so most of us are mestizo, indigenous, and, uh, you know, European blood mixed. And so for us to own that our primary form of discrimination is not actually through the lens of immigration, but through the lens of race, and that that's a longer-term struggle, which then means we have to be in solidarity with other communities of color, I think is really important. Yeah. Let me talk about, uh, y'all enjoying this? All right, okay. Let me talk about voting for a minute. Um, uh, One of my favorite um, news personalities is is a guy named Jason Whitlock on Fox Sports. Now, he says crazy (laughs) stuff sometimes. And you're Brittany, you laughing already, okay? Because I I, I have a feeling where you're about to. Okay, but he said that, um, and, and I've heard scholars say that, you know, has voting been overemphasized as a tool of liberation. Mm-hmm. And what Jason Whitlock will say, black folks in particular, that we're drunk on politics. And so, you know, because you've got a sister just elected mayor in Chicago, but if you ask folks on the street in Chicago, they'll say, yeah, we happy she's a black woman, but they don't think anything will change. So how do you get young people to realize that there, there is value in participating in the political process and, you know, voting your own into office? Yeah, so Jolt, this is the thing we think about every single day. Um, And just to be clear, people try and figure out why we're called Jolt all the time, and it's not an acronym. We're called Jolt because through the power of young Latino voters, we intend to be a shock to the political system of Texas and the entire country. We know that's the power we have. So, you know, I I believe that voting is not the most important civic duty you can do, but I think it is the most basic thing you must do. Mm. Um, And so I think that that's our starting place. And I also think that, to me, 
democracy, even in its original form in this country that excluded black folks, excluded native folks, that excluded women, that it was still a radical proposition at the time that white land-owning regular men could decide to elect people based on the merit of their ideas. And that we have always had to work in this country to advance the idea of radical democracy. And that especially in this moment and in this state, you can't talk about democracy and race, and you can't talk about economy and democracy separate in my mind. That nearly 70% of Americans don't have more than $1,000 in savings. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about this presidential election coming up, to me it's not enough to just say, I want a person of color, or I want this kind of person in office. I think people want representation because your lived experience can guide you sometimes to different policy solutions. But if your lived experience as a brown person, a black person, or as a woman doesn't lead you to a different policy outcome for our community, I don't care what you look like. Um, I care about the change delivered for my community. And so I think that that's important as we understand representation matters, but only if it creates systemic change. And also that individuals don't do that, movements do that. I think I think part of the the challenge. Um, I, I agree, and I think part of the the challenge in voting, um, especially when you look at some of the apathy around it, is not a desire not to be active, right? Because I know plenty of folks who decided that they were going to abstain from voting, who were still at every protest, who were still at every city council meeting, who were still at every police and fire board meeting, making sure that they were engaging in the kind of accountability work that citizens are called to do. Um, But they feel like if we could vote our way to freedom, then we'd be there already. Uh, And that is a legitimate frustration, right? And the fact of the matter is if we haven't actually listened to those folks and we just try to condescend them into voting, then we're missing a really, really important lesson for ourselves. Um, So I agree. I think that voting is absolutely necessary, but it is one tool in an entire toolbox. And if we're trying to live in a house and build it at the same time, then our responsibility is to use every single tool at our disposal. We don't get to just vote. Once we vote someone in, how are we holding that person accountable? Yes, you are the best candidate that was presented to me, but how am I making sure that you actually show up for the things that I care about? In St. Louis County, Ferguson activists um, were able to oust the the, uh, county prosecutor that failed to indict Darren Wilson. Darren Wilson is the officer that that killed Michael Brown Jr. Um, Everyone said Bob McCullough could not be beat, that he he had entirely too many friends in the Federation of Police, that he had entirely entirely too much money, that he had been doing this for too long. And sure enough, the activist picked someone named Wesley Bell, a young black uh, lawyer, to to replace him. And um, part of what they did was actually reactivate voting blocks that the the Democratic establishment in St. Louis had completely forgotten about. They were able to double um, voter registration and voter turnout in long forgotten, mostly poor black communities that the Democratic Party had completely stopped going to, right? And so what they said is we're going to bet on ourselves and we're going to expand the voting base to actually include all of us and not just some of us. And we're going to get the change that we seek. But the day after Wesley Brown was elected, mm-hmm. one of our actors, activist brethren went to the, the Washington Post and wrote an op-ed to urge Wesley Bell to reopen the case against Darren Wilson. Wow. Because it's one thing wow. to get you elected, yeah. but if I elect you, you work for me. That's right. That's right. right? That's right. So how am I making sure right. that you pass the performance review that I'm going to give you That's every right. single time I That's see awesome. you? Mm-hmm. And that is the extension of citizenship that we need to take outside of the voting booth. How to preach. All right, go ahead. All right. All right, uh, let, let, me, let me delve into the issue of black-brown tensions. 
You see it in Houston. You see it in Dallas. You see it in Austin. And typically, the argument goes like this. Latino folks say, we're 40% of the population. It's our turn. The black folk like, no, hold up. We may be 10% of the population, but we've been on the front line since 1619. And you really see it, school board elections, school superintendencies, mayor of city. So, and it's not things people talk about. They whisper about it, They don't talk about it. And so, Christina, since you, you live right here in Austin, what is there a, are there tensions, A, number one, And how do the groups get beyond the tensions? Well, obviously there's tensions, but I think there's tensions across all racial groups in this Mm -hmm. country, um, that we live in a very segregated society. We talk a lot about black and brown unity um, in progressive politics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about the work, I've been working on immigration reform since I was like 18 years old, um, which was like five years ago. Um, (laughs) Or more like 20 years ago. Um, But, you know, I think that a lot of the failures that I think we made is that we didn't talk about race explicitly. That we assumed a lot of solidarity, not just with other black folks, but with other brown folks Mm. in our community. And we didn't do the, we we spent the last two decades trying to prove to white folks that we were suffering. And Uh. we didn't actually go have the conversations with black folks about here's, what's your struggle? You know, it's like organizing 101. Go talk to people about their issues before you go talk about your own. And we didn't do that. And so I think that that's the big failures. And those tensions are real in this state. But I also don't think they're, that there's something that we can overcome. Like, Jolt spends a lot of time talking about, to our members, about black and brown unity. About, for example, when children were being separated from their parents at at the border here in Texas, that we were not the first people to experience that in this country. Mm -hmm. That Native Americans had their children ripped from them and shipped across the country to boarding schools. That Africans had their children stripped from them and sold. But while we were not the first, we sure as hell demanded to be the last. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is how we start talking about it, is understanding what is the issue that our community faces and how does it connect to other folks and then do the work of actually not just assuming solidarity, but building it. Okay. I I think... I think this is really fundamentally about a, a mindset and a paradigm shift. Okay. And I referred to it a little bit earlier, but imagine with me, if you will, two rooms separated by glass. Mm-hmm. So each room can see what the other is doing. And in one room, there is a group of tape people at a beautiful long table full of the best food, the best fruits, the best crops that money can buy, right? You've got in one room a feast and everyone who's sitting around that table feasting with <laughs> each other looks the same. Mm. And in the other room, you've got a tiny little table with just a little bit of food on it. Mm. And 10 times as many people in the room with the small table as the room with the big one. Um, And they're all fighting over scraps of bad food, food that is not nourishing, food that is not healthy, food that does not sustain life. That second room, that room of folks fighting over the scraps, that's how people of color have ingested white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. If the culture of white supremacy is a smog that we all breathe in, we have been taught to compete with one another over scraps instead of questioning why there's glass in between us and the feast, right? So, 
So there's a, a mindset shift that has to happen so that we recognize, hey, actually, my fight is not with you. My fight isn't actually with the people feasting in the other room. My fight is with the system that set us up like uh, this in the first place. My fight is with figuring out how to dismantle this thing and doing so in such a way that, that creates the necessary solidarity so that when we rebuild a new system that we can actually do it together. The trouble is we talk so much about destruction, right? I want to smash the patriarchy. Awesome. You smashed it. Now what do you do, right? What are you left with? You can't just leave people with ruins because when you leave folks with ruins, they'll just replace one supremacy with another. If I decide that I'm going to go get free all on my own, then when I get there, I'm going to make sure that I'm good and I'm going to leave you behind. And that's not why I got into the work, right? I got into the work to make sure that all of us are free because if all of us aren't free, then none of us are free. All right, all right. All right. Uh, Brittany, this question is specifically for you. There's been a lot of the, 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 the Black Lives Matter movement. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of stuff written about the Black Lives Matter movement and spirituality, specifically the black church. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, that the black community, we have two bedrock institutions, HBCUs yeah. and the black church, and they are connected. Yes. Because most HBCUs were started in churches. That's right. All right. What is the role of the black church in the age of Trump? Yeah. Yeah. So um, just just to fill in the the dots for you, um, HBCU stands for Historically Black College and University, <laughs> if you don't know, uh, which is, uh, is important, right? We speak okay. in acronyms right, and we right, got to welcome right, people right, into the conversation. Right. So, um, but, and, and I feel like I'm cheating because my father was a pastor and he was also a, a professor of liberation, black liberation theology and the history of the black church. Okay. So okay. I literally grew up on this stuff. Um, um, historically, the function of the black church was not only the safe space, but it was the brave space, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the, the legacy of prophetic preaching right. requires that you speak the truth of people's pain, yeah. that you speak the truth of the cause of people's pain, mm-hmm. and that you present a solution for liberation and freedom, right? Okay. That those are the three things that as a leader in the black church, you are always supposed to say from every pulpit that you have. I think the trouble right now is, in some ways, the black church as a broader institution has begun to shift away from that responsibility. And it started to mirror this exclusionary rhetoric that was never ours to begin with. So suddenly we're up there talking about abortions and Mm. homosexuality. And I was like, I thought this was the place we were supposed to get free. So I, and we're, and to be clear, that mimics a a direct, um, a direct desire from white Christian conservatives in this country to create those as the two wedge issues in this country, right? There was literally a conversation that when they failed at segregation, they said, what's going to be the next fight? And they picked abortion, right? Like, this is history. I'm not making this up. So here we are in the black church starting to mirror a conversation that not only was never built for us, but was had by the same people that were trying to segregate us out of society. So why are we parroting these issues? I think the, and, and I saw that kind of disconnect on the streets of Ferguson. I saw young people coming out. And, you know, when we came out in Ferguson, we weren't wearing our Sunday best and we weren't singing We Shall Not Be Moved. Mm-hmm. We were wearing protest tees and we were listening to Lil, to Lil Boosie, right? right? And that was a different kind of... Who just got arrested of, yesterday, by the you way. You know, <laughs> we can have a whole two hours up here about well, Boosie, Boosie right. but okay, we're going right. to leave that alone. But, right, but there's... <laughs> but there was, a, there, was a, there was another generation saying, this is the way that we want to express ourselves. And there okay. was an older generation that was saying, but you're expressing yourselves the wrong way. But how soon we forget, because when the old 
older generation was young and That's they right. were expressing themselves, their right. parents said, you're expressing yourselves right. the wrong way, right? Brittany, hold right there. Yeah. Christina, mm -hmm. the generational piece, how do you deal with it? Uh, well, the older generation. you know, I was just at a thing where a young woman was like, what do we do with the older Latinos that won't give us a space? And, <laughs> and I said, well, why don't you run for something? Like, I don't believe, one, I believe in like giving respect to my elders because I, I'm yep. here because of them. Yep. Um, but I also think like, if you look at the Latino community, most of us are young and our power and potential lies with young people. By our next election here in Texas, one in three eligible voters is under the age of 30. Um, it is the largest voting bloc, it's the most progressive, it's the most diverse, and JOLT is part of an initiative to register 300,000 young voters leading up to the 2020 election, which will account for about one in two people registered in the state of Texas. Um, but I think it has always taken the courage the bravery and the imagination of young people to transform our country. And I really do believe that in this political moment where we're having a conversation about race and you can't divorce race and democracy um, in this moment of our nation's history, that I really do it's going to be a young and diverse Texas that transforms the politics, not just of this state, but the entire country and ends the politics of hate. And you have to give space to young people to be able to act out their imagination, their courage, but young people also need to give respect to their elders I don't think we have to ask for permission. I think we just go build and do it and invite people to come along the way. Um, and so that's how we understand our work at Joel. Yes, we're, you know, we're primarily focused on young people because that's where we believe our power and imagination and creativity lies. But you don't uh, burn down the road that helped you get there. Right. I don't think that that's the right way to Which do Which I think ultimately is one of the functions that the black church can serve, right? That you can bring the power and imagination um, and tenacity of young people in marriage with the wisdom of, of an older generation. And I think that that combination housed in that institution and similar institutions can actually help us set a road forward. Um, what do you all do for self-care? I mean, I know you all are super busy in these monumental, this monumental vision that God has given both of you. What do you all do to take care of yourself? Um, well, I have a child, and my child makes me stop. Like, mm. he makes me stop. Before, you know, I, Jolt is the second nonprofit that I started. I started another nonprofit in my early 20s organizing undocumented workers. And it was really hard to stop working. It was really hard because I was representing people whose life was in such crisis, such on the lines, such on the margins that their life was between, like, total despair and could I do something to have an intervention that could really save them and their families. Um, so it was hard to ever turn it off. Um, and I will say, I, I try and walk in between between the like, how do I take care of my spirit, my heart that, you know, needs rejuvenated to do this work and continue yeah. forward. But also understand that I represent folks or work with folks that do live on the margins, mm -hmm. that they don't get to quit and say that they're tired yeah. and wow. that they would like yeah. to go do a mani-pedi. Yeah. And so like, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that it's a balance. It's both like I have to rejuvenate and take care of myself and my family, but I also have to understand that it's a privilege to even say I'm going to go do self-care. Yeah. Awesome. That, yeah. um, awesome. that for the poor and working class folks that I work with, that is not an option that they have. And the other thing, as I say, is like, you know, I talk to a lot of young people that you have to be very clear about your purpose. That it's really hard in this work to not doubt yourself. Mm -hmm. It's hard, especially if you grow up and you don't see anybody like you in mm -hmm. these positions, and that you will be consistently underestimated from the people around you because if you're young, if you're a person of color, yeah. if you're a woman or you're queer, whatever that is, and that you have to not fall into the trap of believing them. Okay. And so I tell this story um, really quickly about, 
I carry the words of my mother because in my first few years, I said, I'm going to quit. I'm not meant mm. to be a leader. I'm, I don't think I'm strong enough. I don't mm. think I'm smart enough. I don't even think I'm Latina enough mm. to do this work. And so I called my mom crying and I told her I'm going to quit. And she just listened to me with only the patience and wisdom that a mother can. Mm. And she said to me in Spanish, she said, Cristina, no llores. Pero más importante que eso, no te dudas a ti misma. Porque tú, mija, naciste para esto. And so she told me, Christina, do not cry, but more importantly, do not doubt yourself because you were born for this. Mm. And so... I carry those words with me that if I was not the person to step up, maybe my community would not have won all of the things that they did. And so I put up with the BS sometimes <laughs> because I know that there is a greater purpose right. and it's not just about yeah. me, yeah. but I do try and replenish my soul with my child. Yeah. Brittany, last question for you. Uh, let me, let me sure. pivot a little bit. Sure. I believe every leader deals with rumor, ridicule, and resistance. Mm -hmm. How do you handle criticism? Because some people think leadership is sexy. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay. I mean, there are sexy elements. Let me right, not right. be ungrateful. How do you handle criticism, particularly from people you're trying to help? I mean, one, one I hold on to the good moments. I okay. mean, you all, I rode over here with Mary Wilson of the Supremes. I don't get to complain. <laughs> I rode over here with the legend. I don't, uh, it's like, oh, I got to go to work. I'm going to work with Mary Wilson. It's fine. Uh, um, <laughs> It's, it, so it's a couple of things. One is I think perspective matters, right? We, there is a whole lot of banding about in the, the, the historical record about who started this chapter of the movement. And I say this chapter because this is a, a generations-long struggle. And I'm like, Michael Brown started this movement. Trayvon Martin started this movement. Sandra Bland started this movement. Ayanna Jones started this movement. There are people who do not even get to live the struggle anymore. Wow. So I don't get to lose the perspective of them or the family members that lost them and were forced into this struggle, not by their choice, but by what was taken from them, right? So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that I am very clear that I had a purpose before anybody had an opinion. Come on now. And I, on. I, and I, I could wow. not agree with you more. And I have spent a great deal of time in prayer and meditation. And I try to renew that commitment to be still and to listen to the voice of God every single day because there is no door that somebody can close for me that Come God has already Come opened, right? That's right? It just, it literally right. doesn't work like that. So if I recenter myself on the That's source, right. I can on. tune out and drown out and silence yeah. all of these other folks who frankly are speaking to me out of their own pain, out yes. of their own oppression, yes. out of their own baggage, and yeah. that's not mine to carry. Yeah. The last thing is, and it is again a spiritual connection, I allow myself to be weak. Because hmm. what I know from my book of faith is Come that God's now. strength is made perfect wow. in my weakness. And I'm actually, <laughs> like, I'm not the one talking to you right now. Every wow. time I get on anybody's stage, what I do is I ask God to move me out of the way and to stand front and center, to yeah. be my words, to be my voice. So I'm not speaking to you right now. God is. And therefore, I'm like, break me. Hmm. Open me on up. Make, make me as weak as I can possibly be so that I am forced to surrender this work to you because justice is divine. And I believe that he's the one that actually is going to make it come to pass. My thanks to Brittany Packnick Cunningham, Christina Sitsun Ramirez, and Leonard Moore. To our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and of course, to you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Updegrove. See you next time.